Hey, what's up, guys, and welcome to episode 89 of Talk 4, the Quickfire podcast where we ask four great questions to unique and interesting people. Behind the mic today is your host, Louis Scoopian. That's me. And let me introduce our very, very special guest for today, Kirk Lippold, who's going to be answering our questions today. Kirk, welcome aboard the Talk 4 podcast. Please just say hi to the fine people listening and just give us a quick rundown of who you are and what you do. And then we're going to shoot some questions. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's great to uh, be here today and I hope your listeners get to enjoy it. So I'm Commander Kirk Lepold, U.S. Navy, retired. Grew up in Carson City, Nevada. And at a young age, decided I wanted to serve. So I applied and was accepted to the U.S. Naval Academy. Arrived there in 1977 and was a 1981 graduate. Upon graduation, I picked what we call surface warfare, which means I was going to go out to Navy ships, traditional kind of Navy path there. And I went through the normal routine where I was a division officer on a tank landing ship, followed that with another division officer tour on a guided missile cruiser, USS Yorktown. Then I had a unique opportunity to commission the Navy's first Aegis guided missile destroyer, USS Arleigh Burke commissioned her as operations officer, which really would give me insight into the intricate workings of that type of naval uh, vessel. Uh, then went on to an executive officer tour of a guided missile cruiser, US, cruiser USS Shiloh out of San Diego. And during that time, I also had assignments at the Navy Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, Army's Command at General uh, Staff College in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and then worked for the Secretary of the Navy at the Pentagon, and then was ultimately got awarded with command of USS Cole, where I then went out and uh, took command of that ship in June 1999, saying the three greatest words of a naval officer's career, I relieve you. And with those three simple words carried out a centuries old time honored tradition, where I assume total accountability for that one plus billion dollar national asset and the lives of our uh, almost 300 of our nation's finest sailors. So, so impressive. I mean, uh, you, you're amazing. And I just think I was thinking back to this earlier. So your little old me, when I was really young, I had one of those uh, plastic warships. I can't remember which one it was, but it was one of those American warships. And I played with it so much. I loved it. So, you know, going back to little old me back then, my God, I'd be freaking out at talking to you right now. It's so cool. Um, But yeah, so about your career then, um, guide me through how long you actually served for then. Um, How many years? Well, at the time I took command of USS Cole, I was pretty standard career path up till that point. I had about 18 years when I took command of the ship just to touch over. And one of the unique things that I tried to do is when I took command, I knew I was being given a real gift by the American people and a special trust by my Navy. Because when you take command, just like you do in the British Navy, you, you, you get, it's that ultimate gift. You, you say those three words, total accountable for everything that goes on. And one of the things that I tried to do was I had already been given one of the best ships on the waterfront. Now it's how do I take that ship and raise the bar even more? One of the things that I tried to do with my crew was first, I wanted them to understand one key component and that was they and they alone are responsible for the decisions they make and the consequences that come from it, all the way down to an individual. There's no more of this, I didn't know, no one told me. It was, you're responsible for your decisions and the consequences. 
The second thing I tried to do is drive into them a level of professional confidence. I wanted them to know their job inside and out, be technically proficient. But once they know their job, then I wanted to set a standard for how well they had to do their job. And then it was incumbent upon me as the captain to make sure that they got the training tools and time to do that job right. So that if somebody made a mistake on the ship, the first person I told everyone to look at in the chain of command is take a step back before you call them in for that infamous counseling session and really ask yourself, did they truly understand the job I wanted them to do and how well I wanted it done? And that I give them the training tools and time to do that. And so with those things, I set about training USS Cole, setting that bar high. And as the crew began to achieve more and more things, as they did things better and better, I kept raising that bar. I wasn't going to be satisfied with a standard. I wanted to make sure that everybody knew what the standard was going to be and why we were raising it. And what that would result in is when USS Cole actually deployed, we were part of the George Washington Aircraft Carrier Battle Group. When I took command, we had a year to get ready for deployment. But because of rotation schedules in and out of the Middle East, where we were going to operate coming out of our home port of Norfolk, Virginia, the aircraft carrier and all the other ships in the battle group left about six months before we did. Part of that was because I literally had the best Tomahawk land attack mission team on the East Coast. Because of that, I was going to carry double the normal load, which meant that rotation schedules would be affected. So the aircraft carrier and all the ships went over and began operating in the Middle East. And six weeks after they left, we deployed first to the Mediterranean. We suffered for four miserable long weeks. We suffered through Barcelona, Spain, Villafranche, France, Valletta, Malta, Copper, Slovenia. And the Navy still has the best tagline these days because join the Navy, see the world. And then we would go through the Suez Canal, down the Red Sea, and at 2.30 in the morning, I was off this port of Aden, Yemen. We had to refuel there because ships like USS Cole, Artie Burke-class destroyer, carries a little over a half million gallons of fuel. We were below 50%. We'd put in a request to take on 250,000 gallons. We knew when we pulled in, it would take anywhere from six to eight hours because of an expected refueling rate of only two, three to 500 gallons a minute. So it's about the halfway point if you look at it between the Mediterranean and the European theater versus the Arabian Sea and the Middle East where Central Command operates. And so they wanted us to pull in and get that gas to be topped off before we actually reported for duty in the Middle East. Were you aware that there was a very imminent danger in that in that place at that time? Or were you fairly confident in in going there and refueling there, or was there a pretty high status of alert for that whole situation beforehand? Great question. There was an increased level of alert. We'd been operating in what they call threat condition alpha, which is probably the lowest, up to threat condition delta, where an attack is imminent. And when we went from the Mediterranean, where we operated in alpha, maybe alpha plus, First time into the Middle East, we were now operating under threat condition Bravo. And being a lean forward guy, I said, we will do all the measures. Two things that played into that. One is unbeknownst to me, we were going to refuel at a pier out in the middle of the harbor. That meant that half the security measures I was said I was going to do didn't even apply to the geographic circumstances. But yet my force protection plan was stamped by both the one star uh, Admiral on the aircraft carrier 
and at the three-star at Fifth Fleet Command. So we kind of got set up a little bit. And then all the port vulnerability assessments that were done by the Navy Criminal Investigative Service, or NCIS, indicated there was no threat in that port. We were actually the 27th ship to be pulling into Aden, Yemen, which sits at the southwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula. And so we didn't expect anything untoward at all. And there were no indicators when we pulled in that the threat actually existed in the port. What we didn't know is that Al-Qaeda had been there for a year observing when Navy ships pull in, what pier they go to, what side they moor to, what boats came out. And also, it wasn't until post-attack that we would actually learn they had attempted an attack on another Navy ship in that port, USS the Sullivans, nine months before us. But the attack had failed because the boat loaded with explosives had sunk. Al-Qaeda had recovered the boat, the trailer, the vehicle, the explosives. They went to a safe house. Then they rebuilt the explosives into the boat where you couldn't even see them. That's when they carried out the attack against us. But when we pulled in that morning, there was no indication that anything was missed whatsoever. Wow, that's crazy. And it is, it's scary, isn't it? Because when you think about and we think about enemies and people, you know, bad people, it's so scary when they're very smart as well. Like it's, it's you, you look at the kind of stereotypical things and you think, you know, the bad guy is someone who's, you know, uh, just very dangerous, but someone who's very dangerous and very smart at the same time. Well, that's truly a threat. But obviously, um, those who know the story know what happened and who you are, of course. But um, I was hoping you could just tell me the story of October 12, 2000, from your perspective of how this tragedy occurred. And obviously, just how you personally reacted as the commander on that day and the following days for it. Absolutely. That morning, we had actually come up and we were off the port by a few miles at 2.30 in the morning. Around 8.30 that morning, we spoke with port control, arranged for two tugs to come out. They met the ship. They escorted us in. We made a series of right-hand turns. And the port itself is shaped like a large bowl. And we were in the eastern half, which was normally where the commercial shipping was. We were at that pier out in the middle of the harbor that I mentioned. That was the standard refueling pier. We pulled in. I made my first force protection decision, turned the ship around and pointed it bow out in case I needed to get underway in a hurry and didn't want to wait for any tugs to turn us around while we might have been under fire, for example. Once we were moored starboard side to the pier around 9.30 that morning, I shut down the four main engines that powered our two shafts. I left two of our three gas turbine generators powering the ship. Each of those is about 2,500 kilowatts each. Then we began the import refueling checklist. We went through the checklist that morning. No problems whatsoever. We were end up ready to refuel the ship around 10.30 that morning. The chief engineer came up. The checklist was complete. I signed off on it. Few minutes later we started pumping fuel on the ship and it was at that point that the supply officer came up with the executive officer and they asked me if they could have something different than what we had done in the logistics request for the port that was done through the embassy because when we pulled in we'd asked to refuel the ship we'd asked to take uh water from the pier so that we didn't have to uh make it out of the dirty harbor water and then we also asked for a barge to pump sewage into because our tanks were going to hold for the six to eight hours we were going to be there. But they also wanted to contract for three garbage barges to come out to the ship to take off the typical trash, plastics, and hazardous material. I agreed to do that. Two barges came out that morning, one to the middle of the ship, one to the back of the ship right after we'd started refueling. 
They left and were halfway across the harbor when a third boat came out. It looked just like the other garbage barges. It slowed, turned by the bow, came down the side of the ship with two guys in it. It looked just like the garbage barges. Unlike what you saw in a lot of the press reports, it was not a Zodiac boat that raced across the harbor and rammed the ship. That garbage barge, or what looked like a garbage barge, center console, outboard motor, two guys in it. They even stood up and waved at some of the crew that was standing security and also watching to make sure we didn't spell fuel. It went to the middle of the ship. And at 11.18 in the morning, there was a thunderous explosion. I was sitting in my cabin that morning. Literally, you could feel all 505 feet and 8,400 tons of guided missile destroyer suddenly and violently thrust up into the right. The ship seemed to hang for a second in the air, slung back down in the water, rocking from side to side, surging fore and aft on the mooring lines. Power failed, lights went out. I literally came up on the balls of my feet in the brace position. And when the ship stopped moving, I went to the door of my cabin. It was dark except for an emergency light at my door and went halfway down the passageway or hallway. A gray cloud of smoke and dust silently washed over me. I could smell the dust. I could smell the fuel, but there was also this metallic tang that settled in the back of my mouth and I didn't know what it was. Young officer stepped out from his room, looks at me wide-eyed and using good sailor-like language, asked me what the F was that. And then he talk, took off into that cloud to find out what was going on. I took one step to follow him, thinking like everyone else up till that moment, that we had had your major fuel explosion on the ship, when suddenly I knew we'd been attacked. When the explosion occurred, it shoved us up and to the right toward the pier. If it had been a fuel explosion on the ship of the pier, it would have blown us to the left and out into the harbor. So instinctively, I knew I had been attacked. I went back into my bedroom area where I kept the safe, where all the keys to the weapon systems are, the missiles, the torpedoes, the guns. I dialed it open with an emergency light shining down on it. And I didn't pull out keys. I pulled out a nine millimeter pistol, loaded it, chambered around, decocked it, two clips of ammunition in my pocket, ran down, ran outside, ran to the middle of the ship. I'm in a semi-enclosed area looking toward the back end of USS Cole. No one is around. A podium that used to be there for the watch team, keeping an eye on the fuel workers down on the pier has been blown into pieces. Wires that used to form a high-frequency radio antenna are snapped off and draped down. Dirty black water dripping off of everything. And at that point, I took a deep breath and said, well, this might be your destiny, but guess what? You're going to go find out what's going on. And if you see someone that doesn't belong, make them duck first and don't leave an empty round in the chamber. Took that deep breath, went over to the port side, saw my chief gunner's mate responding with his security teams. We talked for a second, leaned over, and it confirmed my worst fears. All the metal was shoved inward, indicating that external explosion. You could see the spray pattern of explosive residue. But down the side of the ship, I also saw four orange rafts, one sunk in the blast area, two more deflated lying alongside the ship. Back by the flight deck area was a fully inflated orange raft. And the first thing that went through my mind was, how did someone let this raft get alongside the ship? It was at that point in time that one of the security team members came running up to me and said, Captain, those rafts are ours, look. And sure enough, when I glanced up and down the port side of USS Cole, the left side, it was actually our life rafts that had been blown out of their containers by the force of the explosion. So right then and there, I also learned that it was a garbage barge or what looked like a garbage barge had come alongside as a waterborne improvised explosive device and detonated. And that's what blew the hole in the side. 
From there, I told the chief, don't allow any more boats alongside. I went to the bridge, contacted the Yemeni Port Authority. I asked them to freeze all harbor movements since we didn't know where the attack had come from, notify local hospitals since I knew we'd have wounded that were within the golden hour that I needed to get off the ship to get treated. And then I asked them to send boats out to us to get wounded off. They agreed to do all of those. From that point, I went down and that's where I walked into the galley area near the middle of the ship. And that's where I saw out the side of the hole in, in, of USS Cole. And as I looked out the side, we had not isolated that area electrically yet. I could smell thousands of gallons of fuel from not only what the Yemenis kept pumping on board until they shut the valve on the pier, but also thousands of gallons that leaked into Aden Harbor. But because we've not isolated it yet, I'm seeing these flashes of light internal to the ship. And then I'm also hearing that bzz, 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 live electrical wires dipping in out of the fuel. And I'm thinking not only have we had a devastating explosion, now I'm gonna have a major fire on my hands. I left the galley area. In that point, I now walked out the back end of the mess decks where the crew eats and I'm in the lighted portion of the ship for, my, for the first time. It's my first really piece of good news because at that point, I know if the back one third of the ship has lights on, I have a generator running, which means I can get power to pumps, which means I can save the ship. I could see wounded all the way down the passageway and I would have given anything to be able to talk to them, but I can't. They're not my number one priority. My number one priority has to be the ship because if we can't save the ship, nothing else would matter. I walked into the central control station got briefed on the status of the ship. Of the four main engineering spaces, two of the four had flooded. And at that point, I knew we were going to be able to save USS Cole. And I just looked at him and said, if all we've lost are two of the four engineering spaces, get the flooding teams down into the spaces fore and aft of the blast area. Make sure we get everything electrically isolated. Brace the bulkheads. We're going to be fine. At that point, knowing damage control was well underway, I could turn that over to my executive officer and I went up to the middle of the ship where the triage effort was going on. I got briefed on the status of the wounded. We began evacuating wounded off the ship, initially by literally strapping them into a metal litter, tying two lines to the feet and throwing it to the Yemeni fuel workers, two lines to the head, and then dropping them over the side of the ship where they had leaned a ladder up against the side of USS Cole at a 45 degree angle sliding back and forth onto the pier. We'd get them into the boats that had already come out to us. And that's how we started getting wounded ashore. That first day, we got damage control in the ship stable in a little over an hour. And as a real testament to the crew, every one of them were CPR certified. We were able to evacuate 33 wounded off the ship in 99 minutes. And of those 33, 32 had survived. Oh my God. That is just absolutely insane. You know, one of the, one of the things I've noticed listening to that straight away is that you were incredibly measured during that situation. Very, very level headed. It's so easy for that all to just get to you and affect your thinking in that kind of situation. I mean, the saying goes, doesn't it? No plan survives first contact with the enemy. And I'm sure, you know, an event like this is just the ultimate and extremist test of how disciplined and how clear-minded the whole crew is so how did you how how did they react to, to the whole situation you know just tell me about how you diffused panic and how did you maintain such professional conduct in that situation and organize and rally the troops in a sense because obviously it's not just damage control you've also got 
the possibility of probably another attack and more problems occurring. So you need to really segment off so much stuff whilst also dealing with wounded and dealing with the possibility of a massive fire problem too. So just talk me through how you even go about just go what's the what's the protocol for all that and how how do you how do you maintain the the crew there, there, there's really no protocol i mean let, let's face it in the military you're in a business where you train hope and pray that something like this doesn't happen in the instant the blast went off and i was at my desk the number one thing i had to do is take a deep breath and not look outward but actually look inward to myself and say okay something bad's happened, no matter what gets brought to you, no matter what you're told by the crew from this point forward, you as the captain must stay absolutely calm. Because if in if the crew sensed in any way that there was panic by me, that we weren't going to be able to save our ship, then it was gonna, it was gonna spread by orders of magnitude down the chain of command and we couldn't afford it. The other thing I didn't learn initially and this is where training paid off, is when the blast hit, it knocked our announcing system or what we call the 1MC offline. The battery backup for it failed. The backup system for it failed. So there was no way to tell the crew what had happened, where to go, or what to do. They fell back on their training without anyone telling them and divided into one of three groups. Damage control to save the ship, triage to save their shipmates, security to stop another attack. They broke out every crew serve weapon from 50 caliber machine guns, M60 machine guns, M14, 12 gauge shotguns, nine millimeter pistols. They were all ready to go. And as I mentioned, they went out and they got that ship stable in a little over that hour. And they began immediately treating all the wounded to stabilize them, to make sure that they could save their lives. Most of the wounded were in the mess line and in the galley area, because that's where the crew had lined up for lunch. At the time the blast had gone off, we had started feeding the crew early because the actual refueling rate coming on the ship wasn't that three to 500 gallons a minute. The initial rate coming on board was actually 2,500 gallons a minute. It was overpressurizing the fuel tanks. We had to have the Yemeni fuel workers back off and bring the rate down. But at 2,000 gallons a minute, that was the rate we settled on. I could fill the tanks in two to two and a half hours. So about the time that I finished feeding the crew is about the time the ship's ready to get underway. And the blast hit right in the middle of that and the crew responded magnificently i will tell you right now that about six months before we deployed i rearranged berthing i had about 30 percent more women aboard the ship than was normal i had a 36 person berthing compartment with women i had about 47 i believe on board that morning so guess what there weren't men and women on board my ship the morning we were attacked that morning on uss cole i had sailors Every single one of them did what they were supposed to do. No one panicked. No one went running down the passageway screaming, oh my God, the ship's going to sink and we're all going to die. They focused on their duty even when they were wounded and did what was necessary to save that ship and save their shipmates. Wow. So professional. I, I tell you what, Kirk. So one thing I've noticed from what you're saying right now and the way you speak, actually, so We'll get into the following days after this, but I just want to touch on it while we're here. The way that you communicate, I haven't heard, you're better than me. I, I haven't heard one um, I haven't heard one R ah in the way you speak. It's very direct, very professional. And it 
it derives so much attention and focus from how you speak. So I'm interested, do you think that's probably one of the biggest factors that helped you in your in your command? And also for people who, I mean, I've got to be honest, people my age and stuff, we struggle with the whole ums and ahs thing. How can people improve that and how can people improve their speech and become a little bit more like you in a sense because it's it demands so much authority it's really interesting listening to you well the one thing i would tell folks especially your listeners is that when you go to speak form what you're going to say before you say it everybody struggles with the uhs and the ums and everything else when i retired from the navy i didn't go into the world of defense contracting I instead decided to strike out and become an inspirational speaker. I had been teaching up at our command course in Newport, Rhode Island, telling those young commanding officers and executive officers about the story of the attack. And back then it was a no holds barred, two and a half hour. I'm standing up there talking with a 10 minute break in the middle. But that's where I learned to really hone the story. And I also learned that if you're going to be a good storyteller, if you want to do it, you have to relive it. I will tell you right now, as I'm walking you through this event, I am seeing it in my own mind's eye. I'm smelling that dust. I'm seeing those wounded in front of me. I can smell that fuel. And as I walk in, I can see how people are doing. Many people are scared. They, they wonder whether they're gonna make it through this event alive. And all I could think to myself was, again, stay calm because you're going to have problems brought to you. And you have to remember, my world is this broad thing called USS Cole and everything about it in front of me. But every single person that comes to me that needs to get a decision, I that may be one little teeny wedge. I have to make that wedge my world so that I can gather as much information as possible and make a decision. When you're in a crisis, you don't have the luxury of not making a decision. You make those decisions, you collapse it back down, gain the big picture again, and wait for the next piece of information to come your way. And you're constantly gathering that. And guess what? You're not a politician. If you've made a decision and you get better information, change the decision, even if it means you have to make a 180, because they're relying on you. Lives are at stake. A billion dollar national asset is my responsibility to make sure it doesn't go to the bottom of Aden Harbor. So I would just tell folks, when, when you look at how you're going to address people, learn and concentrate on taking that split second to form the words to say what you're going to say, and then say them very clearly. It takes practice to avoid the us and the ums and everything else to go with it, but everyone can learn to do it. Brilliant advice. I'm going to try and do that right now. <laughs> it's day one for me. Um, so, oh, my God, I just did it. <laughs> so typical. <laughs> I lasted uh, five words. Fantastic stuff. Well, there's a there's a learning process to be done here for sure. But so we're at that stage where you're evacuating and getting people to safety who are wounded. Um, you've got a 40 foot hole in your boat. How the hell do you go about saving that? And just talk to me about the next few days from that moment forward. Well, from that moment forward, we were really focused on number one, making sure that the ship stayed afloat, that we knew what systems we had and were operational, what systems we were lacking and could we work around them. 
We had to rig casual, what we call casualty power cables from the only operating generator at the back of the ship and try to get it forward so we could get lighting. We wanted to make sure that we understood the systems on board and how they were integrating and working together so that we could make sure that we, in fact, got the damaged area isolated so that we wouldn't have that flash to fire by accident. We would work on recovery. Unfortunately, during that time, I also did a muster report. It took us 45 minutes. And the one thing that I needed to make sure was that when that muster report was done, it had to be 100% accurate first time out of the barrel because I knew that back in the United States, there were going to be 17 families that were going to get a knock on the door with the worst possible news. There were also gonna be 37 families that were gonna get almost as bad news and that was for the wounded, how they were doing, where they were being cared for. The initial reports off the ship, what ended up happening is a press reporter from France heard the blast, contacted the French embassy in the Yemen capital of Sana'a. They notified Paris, the first country to come to our aid. The French flew a medical evacuation aircraft in that night. They would fly 10 of my most seriously wounded over to Djibouti. The next day, the Air Force would fly two medical evacuation aircraft in and took all the wounded out of Djibouti, all the wounded out of Aden, initially to Landstuhl, Germany, and then back stateside for treatment. During the course of all this going on, we're working on restoring systems on the ship. We continued to do that until Saturday night when, unfortunately, my only operating generator had quit. The reason why wasn't because of damage necessarily. We had lost the ability to remotely, remotely monitor fuel. Well, being good engineers, they opened the tech manual and said, if this is the load on the generator, in other words, how many kilowatts it's carrying to keep power to the ship, here's the burn rate for the fuel. We'd actually had some damage to the generator. We were burning fuel at a higher rate. We sucked a tank dry. And then we would go through three chances to restart it that failed. So really at about 7.30 in the morning on Sunday morning from Saturday night to Sunday morning, I'm sitting alongside the pier and I'm sinking and God loves sailor ingenuity. One of them came to me and said, you know, Captain, the air packs that the firefighters wear, we've got two portable pumps. What if we put those pumps on the flight deck, ran the hoses down, jury rigged fittings, and actually recharged the flask for the generator with that 3000 PSI high pressure air to restart it? Total discussion, great idea, go do it. We didn't have time to run through safety briefings, explanations, or anything else. I had to extend that bubble of trust that my crew knew what they were doing and they were gonna bring me the best alternatives possible and they did. We ran those pumps for 14 hours and at five minutes after midnight on Monday morning, we restarted number three generator and kept the ship afloat. Monday morning is really when everyone that was coming to our aid began to come aboard. FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation, NCIS, as I mentioned, Mobile Diving Salvage Unit 2 that we're going to do the underwater recoveries of my sailors, as well as Norfolk Naval Shipyard. After we finished that muster report, I knew that I had five sailors that had been killed that had already begun the long journey home to their families, but I had 12 sailors trapped in the wreckage of the mess line, the galley area, and main engine room number one, and we would spend the next eight days working on finding those sailors, bringing them up. One of the things I did, fortunately, is that we draped off the middle of the ship. The FBI came to me, and God love them, because they said, Captain, your crew doesn't have to treat this like it's the South Pacific with kamikaze attacks in World War II. We've got folks here who did the Oklahoma City recoveries, 
We've also done the Bosnia mass grave excavations and the identifications there. We have FBI agents that can put on the Tyvek suits, the masks, the filters, and the gloves. They will recover your sailors. That allowed me to drape off the middle of the ship. And as each of my sailors came up, the only person that did identifications on them was me. That was something that I couldn't delegate. It was something that I, as the captain, had to bear that responsibility. And I did that. And I made sure I know who each of those sailors were before they, too, began that long journey home to their families. And we would do that for eight days. And on the ninth day, we held a memorial ceremony on board the ship. And we were stable the entire time. We were there for 17 days. We kept the ship afloat that entire time. And eventually, we would be towed out of port. We would go 23 miles down the coast and get put on that big heavy lift ship called Blue Marlin, where she would be brought back to the United States. USS Cole would be repaired, and she's still out there defending freedom today. Amazing. What an incredible story. Uh, one, okay, so I'm, in my imagination, I'm trying to imagine these ships. I mean, let's face it, it's a, a US warship is not any small or light thing how just just walk me through this how do you get a ship like that onto another ship i just you, you got to explain that to me because i'm trying to imagine how you do that and it's not like you can just okay uh heave <laughs> that's not it's not gonna work so how, how do you go not about exactly. doing that well at that time blue marlin was 850 feet long and there was kind of this structure area at the bow of the ship and a structure area at the back where they actually would drive the ship from and operate the engines. And in the middle was a huge flat deck that sits low to the water. What that ship is specifically designed to do is it had four acres, one off the port bow, one off the starboard bow, one off the port quarter, one off the starboard quarter. And they would go into what they call a four-point moor and extend those anchors out to make the ship sit absolutely stable. And then they would slowly flood it. And they would take that flat area and they would sink it down, paying out the anchor to around 60 feet deep. They would have blocks on it, just like they do in a dry dock for any Navy ship. They'd already pre-positioned them on board. They were lower than the standard blocks rather than three to four feet. They were anywhere from 12 to 18 inches high. And then they welded two large posts on the side to, so that we could position the ship properly because we actually had to be cocked off at a 17 and a half degree angle because the deepest part of a Navy destroyer actually isn't the screws like it is with a lot of ships or the rudders. It was actually the sonar dome at the forward portion of the ship. So we wanted to make sure we could keep the sonar dome. So with, with Blue Marlin sitting down 60 feet, and we're drawing about 36 feet with the dome because of the extra water. They would gently slide us over the top of Blue Marlin. And then as it came up, they'd have divers down that were positioning to make sure everything was right and that we were landing on the box. And then it would gently lift up. And once contact was made and everything straight, the divers would clear the area, come back on board the Blue Marlin. And then it would just very gently pump out all that ballasting water and lift itself gently. And next thing you know, here comes this destroyer up and out. And you can actually Google USS Cole and Blue Marlin and you'll see pictures of it. But it was it, it was an absolute amazing engineering feat that they were able to position it just right and get it back up and on the ship. 
You know what? I have seen that photo and I, it's actually quite funny because you you see these warships and they are so immensely large. And then you see that photo, it almost looks like some kind of a parody almost. It's, in, it's amazing. Um, I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, you, uh, I'm, I'll try and get it up on the screen now, actually, or something um, uh, in the editing and everything so you guys can see it. Because it's, it's literally the weirdest thing to actually look at when you see something that's big on something that big. And to quote Qui-Gon Jinn, there's always a bigger fish. So I think we're going to leave it there. Um, question three, then. Uh, there's nothing There's nothing nice about, about death and, and people getting hurt and war. There's nothing nice about that. But something that I've been speaking about recently, and actually um, our mutual friend Tanto, uh, we spoke about this too. Finding the silver linings in, in traumatic events and flipping things in itself is such a powerful thing to do. If you can have something so negative and turn that into a positive so is there a silver lining in your eye uh, as a result of that horrible day and that and that period um what were some of the biggest lessons and take-homes learned by yourself as a leader and also did that event reshape the military and naval approach to the security and prevention of this kind of stuff somewhat absolutely one of the things that happened is we got hit on a thursday the 12th of october 2000 saturday morning I had been hearing rumblings in the crew. And so I pulled the entire crew together and I had a very blunt and honest conversation. with, them. And I told them, look, everything that you are experiencing, the anger, the agitation, the nightmares, the lethargy, all those things, guess what? They're normal. It's your mind processing through the tragic event that we have just all suffered through. I'm one of those people that I don't like the term post-traumatic stress disorder. It's not a disorder. Anytime you experience something of this nature that so profoundly affects how you feel and what you see, you're going to have issues from it. What I wanted to make sure the crew understood is that we all were going to experience post-traumatic stress issues as a result of the attack on USS Cole. But everything that we're going to experience is going to be normal. We're going to work through it. But none of us are going to get through this event alone. All of us are going to have to rely on each other. We're going to have to watch each other's back. We're going to have to care for each other. We're going to have to be better listeners than we are talkers. But all of us are going to have to share this experience with each other at some point to know that we're in this together and that we as a crew are going to get through this together. And I think as a result, even today, my crew has a lower incidence of post-traumatic stress being diagnosed with a lot of them than other people that have, may have gone through a tragic event like this. But I'll also say that I still stay in touch with almost every single one of my crew members today because I wanted to make sure they understood that we are forever bonded by this. Whether we like it or not, it's part of the fabric of who we are. Some of the crew... They never want to talk about it, and that's fine. I get that. I took a step back, and I could have made that decision when it came time for me to walk off USS Cole and be relieved. I could have put it in a box then and walked away. I chose not to. When I retired, I could have put it in a box, put it on a shelf, and maybe opened it every few years. I chose not to. Instead, while I was on active duty, I shared the story of what happened to me as the captain with future commanding officers so that they could learn from it. Then I took that when I retired and decided to continue to share that event with businesses so they could learn about leadership, 
about crisis management, about safety. Because believe it or not, after the attack is, again, a testament to how well the crew had kind of adopt safety into everything they did. I didn't have one reportable safety incident for those 17 days until we got the crew off the ship. Not one, which really is, a, is, is an amazing considering how much rendered metal and electrical wires and fluids everywhere didn't have a problem. So I really look at it as you, when things like this happen, you just have to say, where can I take what's happened to me and leverage it to good by maybe sharing it with other people, teaching them, here are the lessons learned out of it. Here's what you can gain from the knowledge and experience that I had and doing it for good. And I've been doing that for 16 years now, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Every time I walk on stage, every time I share this event like, with I, am you to, like I am with you today and with your listeners, I relive it but I relive it because I know that sharing about that event and the heroism of what my crew did and accomplished in saving that ship is something that I want people worldwide to remember. Never give up the ship. We never did, and USS Cole's out there today still serving our nation. Amazing. Two questions for you then. So there's a there's a saying that goes around. It's the captain goes down with his ship. And on a personal level, going beyond just how you must have felt for the crew members who were injured and passed away, how did you feel when how do I how do I phrase this? How does it feel to be commander of the ship and have it as your ship and then have something like this happen to it where it gets so badly damaged and also so if you can leave me with that and also end with how did it feel when it re-entered service for you? Like, what was that like for you? When, when I was walking around the ship initially, surveying the damage, seeing what was going on, just taking it all in. You know, I also ran into crew that were wounded. When I initially arrived in that midships area, one of my senior chief petty officers was very badly wounded. He, as a matter of fact, he had been the last one evacuated out of the chief's mess. And when the rescue teams got to him, he was on his back looking up and says, hey, don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'm just pinned in by debris, but be careful. There may be body parts around here. The rescue teams didn't say a word, but when they got down to him, it wasn't body parts. It was a compound fracture to his right leg, and it was folded up and across his chest with his boot near his left ear. So they straightened the leg out, brought him up, and when I arrived up there, he motioned me over. And as I bent down, he reached up, grabbed my hand and looks at me and says, Captain, I don't think I'm going to make it. And I'll never forget. I just looked very calmly down at him and said, Senior Chief, I don't want to hear that. I want you to think your wife, Lisa, and those two blonde haired kids at yours want to see their daddy again. He said, you didn't know, you don't know how badly I'm hurt. I said, yeah, I do. You've got a badly busted leg. That's it. We're going to get you off the ship. We're going to save your life. We would get him off. He would survive. He got his leg repaired. He now knows when bad weather is coming. And he actually promoted to Master Chief. And when we retired from the Navy in 2005, I went to his hometown of Elk River, Minnesota. And just to show you how dedicated, I went there in January. So you can imagine how cold it gets in January in Elk River, Minnesota. So being dedicated to my crew, I kind of look at it as staying in touch with them and continuing to foster that bond that we'll forever hold. I think that's something that every person in a leadership position needs to know. If you take care of your people, if they know that you are invested in them, 
if you're not only willing to trust them, but also take risk on their behalf, let me tell you something. They're going to they're going to form a bond with you that can last a lifetime, whether you stay with an organization or not. Being in the military isn't the job for life and you eventually retire and you go find work. And guess what? I still stay in touch, as I mentioned, with most of my crew today. But I'll also say you have to sometimes do things that are taking the big picture. On that first day, as we were coming up on sunset, we hold a ceremony on Navy ships called Colors. Every morning at eight o'clock, we play our national anthem, raise the flag to fly over the ship today. And every sunset, calculated no matter where we are in the world, we lower the flag, fold it, and wait till the next morning to raise it again. The XO and I are standing at the back end of the flight deck. And he says, what do you want to do about colors? Do you want to lower it like we normally do to show they haven't disrupted our routine? Do you want to lower it to half mast to honor the 17 sailors killed and 37 wounded? And I remember looking at my XO and looked up at that flag stained with the dirty black residue of the explosion. I looked over at Aiden where the lights were coming on in the twilight. And then I told him, we're not going to hold colors. I want that flag to fly at full mast as a, with lights rigged to shine up on it as a symbol of our resolve that we are not going to let this terrorist attack deter us from our mission of defending freedom. I knew that what had happened to us was bigger than me, bigger than the crew, bigger than our ship. They had attacked the United States of America, and I needed to send a signal to those terrorists that we were not going to give up on our mission. That flag flew for the next eight days until all those sailors had been recovered. And on the ninth day, we held a memorial ceremony. Our chaplain had flown aboard the ship from the aircraft carrier that was now operating in the Mediterranean. He gave the invocation. I spoke. And then a crew member from every rank that we'd lost spoke. Officer, chief petty officer enlisted. And then as a crew, we sang Amazing Grace. Chaplain gave the benediction. And at sunset, we lowered the flag and folded it. And then we passed it from sailor to sailor rang the ship's bell twice, announced the name of the shipmate that we'd lost. And when it got to the end, my command master chief, the senior enlisted aboard, took that flag, presented it to me, and I gave it to my relief when he took command and rebuilt that ship. But I'm keeping an eye on that flag because ships don't last forever. Eventually, when USS Cole finishes serving our nation, that flag is going to come off and go into a museum because it's part of our naval heritage. It's part of our nation's history. Before 9-11, there was 10-12. And today I've had the honor and privilege, not only of sharing the story of my heroes, hopefully giving your listeners some tips into when things go south, when they turn bad, when you don't think they can go worse, and they do, stay focused, stay calm, you'll get through it. But take the time to focus on what you're going to say and lead your people out of it, and you will always be a success. That is absolutely so inspiring and so true so kirk um, amazing um you you touched on it afterwards though and i mean this event was the precursor to 9 11 one year later that's when that happened and it's, it's a very different thing attacking someone's home turf from from a ship or something like this so what happened with your life after after the call and, and after that was resolved and what did it feel like? I mean, because this was the same group, uh, Al-Qaeda, that that instigated 9-11. And it was just horrible. As it, in, you know, we we remember that time. And we, we it's just, it, how people can do that. 
it baffles me. I, I just, I don't understand how someone can think that they're doing the right thing by doing something like that. But where did your life go after the coal then? And where were you when 9-11 happened? And my God, I mean, how how did that feel? I mean, obviously every American, every everyone who supports freedom and and good felt that deeply at that time. So you had experience with this group as well. So how the hell did that feel for you? And what was happening when that happened for, for you? Well, immediately after the blast, one of the things that happened is there was a major investigation into how the attack occurred. And at the end of that, the investigation took statements from a lot of people, looked at it, and really said that there were a number of faults throughout the chain of command. And that even if every security measure had been applied, there was nothing that could have been done that would have mitigated or prevented that attack. You know, that's not for me to decide. That's for far more experienced naval officers to look at. I will, as the accountable officer, as the commanding officer, always live with the fact that 17 sailors died on my watch. But at that point, I felt like I still had a career and I was told you should continue to serve. Some people had recommended, hey, get out, write a, write a book, get on the speaking circuit, make a million bucks. And I just, I wasn't ready to relive that event. So I went to work and I arrived at the Pentagon in July of 2001 and I reported to the joint staff and what they call the J-5, which is the strategy and policy directorate for all the armed forces. I was working for the chairman at the time. And when I did that, my commanding officer that I mentioned on the guided missile cruiser USS Shiloh had since come back to Washington, retired, and was working for the CIA. Well, as I'm on the joint staff, he calls me up and says, hey, my boss, who is the assistant director in charge of collections. So you can imagine, simple title, assistant director for collections. And they're, they're, he's got his fingers into every bit of intelligence that we get from around the world wanted me to come up to to CIA headquarters and get briefed on what they knew about bin Laden before, during, and after the attack on USS Cole. So we fenced some dates, picked one, got in the car that morning, drove up, beautiful fall morning. As I was driving up, I talked to the nice camera at the front gate, talked to the nice armed guard, lowers the gate. I get a VIP pass. I park in the old headquarters building. I walk through the front door. And it, it was like, it was exactly like you would see in the movies. There's that 16 foot granite seal. To my left is the one gold star from the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor organization to the CIA. To my right are the row after row of the gold stars on the, on the wall of honor for those agents that have given their life in service of our nation. And then we went up and I sat down and started getting briefed at seven o'clock that morning. And the briefing lasted an hour and a half. And at the end of that, Mr. Allen looked at me and he says, well, what do you think? And I said, first, thank you very much for taking the time, but I need to be honest with you, sir. America doesn't understand. I believe it is going to take a seminal event, probably in this country, where hundreds, if not thousands, die before Americans realize we're at war with this guy. He looks at me and says, well, we're doing the best to make sure that doesn't happen. And from there, we left and went out to go look at some overhead or satellite imagery of some of the Al-Qaeda training camps that I'm sure you've heard of over time, Tarnak Farms and others. 20 minutes after I said that, the first plane hit the North Tower of the Twin Towers. We knew something was up. I was literally standing outside the counterterrorism center to go meet Kofor Black at the time. You can read about him in papers. When I witnessed the second plane hitting the South Tower, blowing out the other side in a huge explosion. And right then and there, 
everybody around us. We knew we were at war. I went back up, got called back up to Mr. Allen's office. He shooed everyone out, put his arm around me and said, well, I can't believe this is really happening. I said, well, sir, we got a busy day ahead of us. I left, went down, hopped in my car, drove down what's called the George Washington Parkway. As I almost to the Pentagon, I'm talking on the phone and I get told Pentagon's been attacked. As I went under this stone bridge and looked up, I could see the top of the black cloud and it was like a wall came down. I'm back at work. Yes, Pentagon's been attacked. I'm going in to see what I can do. Call my folks and tell them I'm okay. I'll call you when I can later today. Click, hung up. And I went up and parked the car on the main highway going out of Washington, D.C., 395. And there's a parking, there is a road that runs parallel around the Pentagon called Boundary Channel Drive. As I parked there, I'm helping direct traffic. The child daycare center was attached to the Pentagon. The kids had been evacuated across the street to the uh, park. They were all safe. Parents were showing up panicked and I had to get them calmed down because we didn't need more casualties by making anyone get hit as they were rushing to find their children that were safe. So once they were calm, they'd go get their kids and all was good. But two times while I'm standing there, these black Suburbans with blue lights flashing would drive by and then slam on their brakes, back up, the windows had come down and these guys look at me and say, what are you doing here? It was FBI agents responding out of downtown and headquarters, Washington, that were responding to the attack at the Pentagon. And I said, hey, I'm just trying to do, what do you need to do? What do you need to get to? And I would give them directions on how to get there. And they'd say, can't you get away from these guys? And they'd say, look, you need to stick close. They obviously keep missing. So that's where I was on the morning of 9-11 had no idea what had happened. When I heard the towers collapsed, I literally thought they went ka-chunk. I had no idea until I got home at 5.30 that night, sunburned from being out in the sun all day long, that I witnessed the horror on TV of what would become the collapse of the Twin Towers with thousands of Americans dead. Absolutely horrific. And so that was my 9-11. And, uh, you know, pretty terrible to witness that. I was back at work the next day in the Pentagon. Fortunately, my office was 180 degrees out from where the uh, the plane hit. And uh, you go on, and we knew we were a nation at war, and we responded accordingly. And I continued to serve until I retired in June 2007 after 26 years. Wow. Wow. What a story. I think one thing I noticed in that, in that story there, actually, about your 9-11 was it's very evident that the same motor system, the same mindset that happened when you first came out of your quarters after you'd heard the explosion on the cold, that same mindset kicked in towards just mission driven. What can I do? What do we need to do? And no panic, no, no fog or anything just straight away onto it. So clearly that, I mean, you are clearly the definition of a fantastic leader. I can absolutely I can hear it in your voice and I know it in my heart. You were meant to be the commander of that ship. Um, so coming coming from the best of the best at leadership. So you know, what would you most want the world to take away and utilize from that event and the actions of the crew, which uh, they will apply into any leadership roles they find themselves in too. So whether that's business and, and corporate, corporate stuff, um, parenting, or just a young man or young lady in their school group project, or even themselves in personal lives, or even me for myself, 
What do you think is the golden lesson from the USS Cole that can change or grow how we feel about leadership and implementing it? The number one word for me is integrity. And a lot of people will say, well, that's pretty easy. It's doing the right thing at the right time for the right reason, even if no one is looking. And I'll challenge you to say, no, that's ethics. When you want integrity, you have to have that ability to make the right moral and ethical decisions, regardless of the consequences. Because a lot of times what will happen is when people go to make their decision, it's not the decision point. It's actually they start measuring the consequences. They're already over the line trying to measure what are the consequences if I do this. And the reality of it is don't let it get there. You know, when I was teaching those young midshipmen at the academy in a class on ethics and morals, what I would tell them is, look, you have to start with the small stuff. You have to habituate. You have to practice every single day making those right moral and ethical decisions. Are you going to have failures? Absolutely, yes. We're human beings. But when you have those failures and you recognize them, what you do is you pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Look yourself in the mirror and swear that you're going to make the best effort possible to never let it happen again. And you keep working that so that when the big things do happen, it's not even a question of where you're going to go with that decision. You make the right decision. And that's why integrity is something that you have to practice every single day. And you do it over and over and over with the little things to the medium size, to the big things, so that if that seminal moment occurs in your life, you know you're going to have the moral courage to make the right decision. Mic drop. Perfect. I mean, that is absolute perfection, Kirk. Thank you so much. Um, last thing I want to ask you then before we before we sign off is, um, so obviously I had Chris Tanto Peronto uh, on recently, and we discussed 13 hours and the events of Benghazi and and the movie and documenting something like that by a movie to to for because it's it is art. These events and how you can turn things like that and telling the stories of heroes in any shape or form, even just a little podcast like this, it's so important for our history and. I wanted to know, how would you feel about potentially a movie being made about the events of the coal? And um, how do you think, how do you, do you think that's something that we may see in the future potentially? And how would you feel about it? Well, I, I would love to see a movie made. I mean, I think it's obviously an incredibly compelling and powerful story. Uh, what the crew accomplished that day and in the days that followed after the attack is just it's just mind-blowing to me. The Navy, it was very interesting. For years, the Navy wanted to take every lesson learned from this event, but they never wanted to talk about it. It was a huge embarrassment. They had put one of their ships into a port with the lack of with a lack of intelligence, with a, a force protection mindset that really didn't focus on the details of the procedures, the equipment the training, all those things, the rules of engagement. And so what ended up happening is the Navy got caught short. I bore the brunt of that. That's fine. Welcome to the, welcome to the world of command.
But at the end of the day, I think that if they were to take that story and someone were to really sit down and write the script out, there's probably not going to be a whole lot of ad-libbing when you really get down to the details of it because of what the crew accomplished that morning and in the days that followed is absolutely heroic and epic. And I would hope that someday somebody is going to capture that on the film for the sake of not only the American people, but the world to demonstrate that when people like Al-Qaeda or terrorists try to do bad things, we're going to stand up to it. We're going to get past it. We're going to be better and we're going to find them and we're going to hunt them down and make sure they never do it again. Ooh, I think that is a good way to end it. I mean, that just, I have nothing to add to that. That is absolutely perfect. My thoughts exactly. It's so important for us, especially in times like this, where there's just so much, so much bad going on in the world. We could all benefit from a little bit more of that, but excellent stuff Kirk that has been the four questions done for today and I know you wrote a book and everything too so please shameless plug away just feel free to promote anything that you're working on you want people to take a look at just something you believe in and uh and more more stuff from you well one, one thing I did is that I finally decided I needed to capture the history of that attack and its aftermath and when I, I sat down at about after I retired, it took me 10 years to really finally get to a point where I was at a keyboard reliving that experience onto paper. One of the things that I'm most proud of in writing my book called Front Burner, Al-Qaeda's Attack on the USS Cole, is that every single quote that's in that book, I put a tape recorder down on the table. And when I did that, I did it not, not so much to just record stuff. I wanted to capture it for the sake of history. I knew having talked with some of those brilliant writers and professors that were at the Navy Historical Foundation, that they in fact also wrote about history and that I wanted to measure up from that. While I captured the drama of what happened when I wrote Front Burner, I also know that it's been the historically, I have not been called out on anything that's inaccurate, and so consequently, it remains not only a, a seminal book in the history, but also the drama of what happened and all the ripple effects around the world that went on with it, from how the United States now approaches putting their ships or any units into harm's way as they're traveling around the world, to how officers should be interfacing with senior leaders. I was dealing with the ambassador. I was dealing with the one-star, two-star, three-star admirals. I was on the phone talking with the president of the United States the day after the attack. Nothing in your nothing in your training prepares you for that. But if you have that standard of integrity, you're always going to be able to live up to that measure and ensure that you can make those right moral and ethical decisions. And that to me is what matters. And that's what that book really reflects. While I do have a website, kirklipold.com, it's still somewhat under construction. So I apologize if you go to it. But I'm very active on LinkedIn, Facebook accounts, those types of things. I'm active on Twitter at, at Kirk Lippold. So, you know, any one of those, happy to connect with folks if they've got follow-on questions or anything that they about this discussion we've had today that they would like to learn about. Great stuff, Kirk. Yep, I'll have all the links for that in the description, guys. But yeah. Honestly, that has been such a such a powerful conversation. I've really, really enjoyed speaking to you today. So, Kirk, 
thank you so much for joining me today for the talk for podcast honestly an absolute pleasure and a true honor having you on and thank you for your service mine as well thank you very much it's been brilliant and thank you guys for listening um I'm glad I got through this. I've got COVID right now. So if I spoke a little bit quieter than usual, that's why, guys. But yep, we got through it. Um, episode 89, it's been an incredible one, really motoring on to 100 episodes now. So excited for that. I'm going to do something really special for it. Um, guys, just do the usual stuff. If you enjoyed this chat, there's going to be so many more like them. Go and check out Tanto's one. Go check out Tyler Gray one. Kegan Smurfgill, just amazing stories of survival, resilience, and overcoming adversity. So there's more like this and more on the way, guys. Please do subscribe, leave a like, leave a comment, and share it around with your friends. It's tough out there on social media to get out there. So guys, do me a favor if you got something out of this and share it around. But as for now, guys, I'm going to say goodnight, fights on, and see you next time. Good night.